This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Andrea Dukakis in for Ryan Warner. The partial government shutdown is now the longest in history. Today marks a full month that thousands of federal workers have either been furloughed or have had to work without pay. And federal workers aren't the only ones affected. CPR's Max Weisick News Fellow Joella Bauman is covering the shutdown as it progresses. She joins us to talk about its impact in Colorado. And hi, Joella. Hi, Andrea. When we last spoke, your focus was the direct effect of the shutdown on government workers. Those were folks struggling when they missed their first payday. How are things looking now? Well, those individuals are definitely still struggling. Uh, That date for a missed paycheck has come and gone, and another one is quickly approaching. January 25th will mark the second missed pay period for some federal employees. Some furloughed employees have taken advantage of their ability to tap into unemployment, and the Department of Labor estimates there are about 53,000 full and part-time federal workers in Colorado, and more than 2,400 of them have filed for benefits since the first week of the shutdown. Mm. When they actually get those benefits seems to be up in the air because there have been so many new claims opened up. Um, I've been told that the six weeks is the new average. At this point, we can really only expect those numbers and wait times to grow because there are also essential workers who are going to start tapping into those benefits. Governor Jared Polis announced Friday that staff deemed essential essential can and should also apply. Now, I understand banks have also stepped up to try to ease the strain for people affected by the shutdown. How's that? Yeah, they really have. I spoke with Jennifer Waller, the chief operating officer for the Colorado Bankers Association, who said, by and large, banks are doing what they can for their customers. Almost every bank that I'm aware of is doing something to accommodate their customers that are impacted. What I would encourage those individuals to do is reach out to their financial institution one-on-one. Waller said she believes a lot of what happens is people don't reach out to their lenders and assume the worst. So many banks are waiving late fees and insufficient fund fees, giving one-month deferments on mortgage payments, approving low and no-interest short-term loans, and approving credit cards with no-interest periods. Denver also has a program to help residents. That includes federal workers and others affected by the shutdown. But I understand it only has so much money before it runs out. Last Monday, Mayor Hancock announced a new temporary mortgage assistance program that will help not only federal workers, but any business owner who can show they've been affected by the shutdown. This is part of our uh, overall assistance programs to our citizens, and it's for those who need temporary assistance with uh, rent, mortgages, or utilities. So this program is a partnership with Mile High United Way that provides households up to two months or $5,000 of help towards their mortgage payments. That program started last Wednesday, January 16th, and Hancock says he fully expects the money to run out. There is a $2 million pool set aside through Denver's Affordable Housing Fund, and that money is also for the Temporary Rental Utility Assistance Program, excuse me, which that started as a pilot program last year. So any federal workers who are renters can access these funds as well. Now, what options do people who live outside of Denver have? Well, I spoke with Lori Wallowitz at the Action Center in Jefferson County. This isn't a federal employee-specific resource, but they have been working to get the word out about federal employees being able to use this as a resource. Not only do they offer food, but resources to help on rent and utilities. We have services that we offer, an opportunity to visit our self-select grocery and our clothing bank and the opportunity to get household items, as well as different financial assistance around utilities or rent, uh, assuming we have those grants. 
So there are programs similar to these in many cities and counties around the state, but people are really going to have to get resourceful and start searching for them because, again, need will only grow and supplies are limited. Many places, such as the Action Center, depend solely on donations. Okay, now how has the shutdown started to affect people who depend on government workers, for example, for services they provide? So people who receive food food assistance benefits through the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program got a big scare this month. They haven't necessarily been affected yet, but they're... Depending on how long the shutdown continues, the Department of Human Services is currently benefiting, uh, distributing benefits early for the month of February. Mm-hmm. So they've expedited those benefits because they may not be able to after the end of the month. They would usually distribute those over the first 10 days of the month. So I spoke with Jolie Smith, the Marketing and Communications Director for Dem- Denver Human Services, who said that there may be some funding available after that. We do have some funding available in reserves to help get us through February with our SNAP funding. Mayor Hancock has asked the city agencies to really work with the Department of Finance um, should this shutdown continue into, let's say, March. So while Smith only represents the city and county of Denver, what she said is really indicative of what each of the counties throughout the state will be looking at. They may have reserves, they may not. Either way, the situation begins to look really dire come March. This also puts a question mark around a lot of other benefits like affordable housing and cash benefits such as TANF, which is Temporary Assistance for Needy Families. None of those seem to be in jeopardy, but yet is the big word here. People are getting really worried. You talk to folks who work in industries that depend on federal contracts. What did they tell you? Yeah, so the timber and real estate industries are being affected in ways that people might not think of initially. I spoke with Patrick Gaynor, who's the founder and co-owner of Market Forestry in Colorado Springs. Gaynor said 40% of the work they do and the majority of their income comes from stewardship contracts they acquire with the U.S. Forest Service. So these projects are crucial to reduce the risk of forest wildfires. The company isn't being paid for the work it's doing, but it's continuing to work and footing the bill in the process. It's extraordinarily expensive to run a forestry project. So as a small business, how long can you run a payroll for without income? How long can you keep purchasing fuel for your equipment, paying your insurance, paying your bills? It's, it's stressful. The company takes these contracts in seven states, currently in Flagstaff, Arizona, and the Pike and San Isabel Forest near Colorado Springs. These are projects that contribute to the health and safety of our forests and surrounding communities. It's all forest fuels reduction, and you've seen the devastating fires. You know the story of Waldo Canyon, um, the Hayman fire, the car fire that just happened in California. This is work that needs to be done to protect our forests. This is just one example of so many other resounding stories we're hearing from contractors across industries. Some have been forced to stop working and furlough their staff. And in cases like this, they're grappling with the hard decision of continuing to do truly valuable work on their own dime until they can't do it anymore or to not do it at all. What about the real estate industry? How is the shutdown affecting that sector? So this is kind of interesting because it really depends on where you live in the state. Mm. I spoke with several realtors associations on the Front Range, and they aren't greatly affected by the shutdown thus far. More so than anything, Kelly Moy, spokesperson for the Colorado Association of Realtors, told me she believes consumer confidence is taking a hit. You find that their confidence just in our general economy is starts to fade a little bit, and you see things like purchases of cars and houses 
uh, stop when that happens and at the very least slow down, which in the next few months will be interesting to watch. So this is the general consensus for more of the urban metropolitan areas. But I also spoke with Robert Hutchinson, a sales manager for Fairway Independent Mortgage, who works in rural southern Colorado market. He painted a very different picture. He said, in fact, consumer confidence in the housing market down south is high because of the rising cost of living. Rent is so high, it's, uh, it's similar to front range rents. And I've helped uh, many people that were paying 1400 a month rent and their new house payment is $1,100. Uh, so we're actually lowering their payment monthly by having them own the home. So Fremont County is a portion of the area he serves, and Hutchison said the whole county is blanketly approved for USDA home loans. Mm-hmm. It's a federal program for moderate to low-income home buyers, and 99% of these folks can't cover their down payment or closing costs. So this loan program covers it for them, which is a good thing until you factor in the shutdown. That means they're stuck in, a rock, in between a rock and a hard place. Their loans aren't being processed, and they can't go to anyone else because everything is USDA. Mm. Um, Joella, thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. That was CPR's Max Weisick News Fellow, Joella Bauman. She gave us an update on the partial government shutdown as it enters its fifth week. By the time many Americans pay regular bills for food, housing, a car, and medical care, it can be hard to save money. A lot of federal workers are dealing with that right now. They don't have cash on hand to replace their paychecks, and it's an issue many Americans face. One Colorado bank is trying to address this by starting younger, teaching kids to start saving. But there are takeaways no matter what the age. I'm joined by Rich Martinez, president of the Young Americans Bank in Denver, a center for people 21 and under. And Rich, welcome to the show. Thank you, Andrea. Surveys show about 40 percent of Americans have enough savings to cover a $1,000 emergency expense. A recent international study ranked the U.S. 10th among developing countries in the rate of personal savings. These problems, as we said, aren't unique to federal workers. What do you try to teach kids about saving? Well, savings is a habit that we learn. Um, So for young people, we're really trying to get them in that habit of paying themselves first. So setting aside money right off the bat, whether they get a, a birthday gift or an allowance. So starting early like that. Then you move on to talking about the difference between needs and wants. And so understanding their spending habits so they can carve out a place to or a portion to save. Although I would say saving isn't only about habits. Doesn't it also have to do with whether people are being paid enough? Maybe they have no choice. They have to live paycheck to paycheck. Well, I think regardless of how much people make, um, and there are some things that really squeeze that budget, but making sure that you set aside at least a little bit for that emergency fund, as you were talking about, to cover those expenses, it's it really is making those sacrifices and understanding what you need versus what you want um, and, and, and trying to set that, that money aside. Now, I've always wondered if an approach to money can be taught or if it's something we're born with. I think it's a little bit of each. Um, I think we all have our own personal relationship with money, and I think that's really how we grew up, um, how our parents manage money, um, but also just how we prioritize things that we want to buy. So setting those goals, um, both short-term and long-term, really makes a difference of, of kind of shaping that relationship. 
We hear a lot about millennials, how they're less interested in material things and more interested in experiences. Could that mean they save more? Um, I think it's a kind of a mixed bag. And so they may be saving more, um, but those those experiences cost money. And so hopefully they're balancing the the car or the house with those experiences, um, but really making informed decisions on on what is the long-term effects of, of having those experiences. I wonder if young people have different attitudes towards saving depending on whether they come from wealthy or low-income families. I definitely think they do. It just it really looks at how are they brought up um, and whether those basic needs are met um, or whether they have a lot of disposable income. Um, and so sometimes it's it's shaped negatively because they may have disposable income from their parents' income. And so that makes them more spenders um, rather than savers. Mm-hmm. So it, it really is – it depends. You noticed something really interesting about kids' savings patterns at the bank during the Great Recession and since then. Can you talk about that? Yeah. When the, the Great Depression or Recession started, um, we saw savings balances increase actually quite dramatically and the number of accounts opened. And, mm. and what we really thought was happening was parents that didn't save during this time period said, I'm not going to make my children have the same mistake that I did. So they came into the bank and opened savings accounts. Um, and really started saving for their kids' education or just just in general. Or maybe their kids were watching them and getting nervous themselves. Uh, very much so. I think those uh, those expectations and, 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 and really feelings came to the surface during that time. Rich, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. Rich Martinez is president of the Young American Center for Financial Education. It caters to customers 21 and under and teaches them money management skills. Our Colorado Wonders question today comes from Sandra Yelton of Boulder. She asks, why are there no passenger rail trains to Vail, Breckenridge, Aspen? Who are the personalities who promoted highway over rail construction? What we learned is the idea of a train through the mountains to ease I-70 congestion isn't off the table. A coalition of communities and businesses along the corridor launched a new study that could make the case for mass transit and its economic benefits. Tim Mock is co-chair of that coalition. Tim, thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure being here. Trains have this mystique about them, and they're such a devoted following. What is it about trains that make people love them so much? I think it's a pressure-free ride through the countryside and, and oftentimes scenic that, that really kind of captures people's imagination and, and an ability to, to enjoy the countryside. I understand, perhaps not surprisingly, that we can expect more traffic in the mountains. What are the projections for the next 5, 10, 20 years? So the the projections for the I-70 Mountain Corridor going to 2025 is we're expecting roughly 60 to 70,000 vehicles. And that's daily travelers. How does that compare to before? Uh, before, you know, we never thought we'd see 50,000 vehicles uh, crossing the Eisenhower Tunnel, and now we certainly do. Uh, and then we can't forget about the population growth here in Colorado. The seven-county metro district has grown to nearly 3.1 million people, mm. adding an average of 55,000 people every year. Wow. 
CDOT has a plan finalized in 2014 for managing the growing traffic. Where do trains fit into all of this? So it's part of the long-term solution for the I-70 Mountain Corridor that includes highway improvements and uh, high-speed transit on the corridor uh, in order to meet 2050 uh, travel demands. And what do those trains look like? So right now, the technology has not been decided upon. It's what we call an AGS, an Advanced Guideway System. And we've been busy trying to understand what those might look like. We had a 2014 study. The technology that was um, identified back then was a maglev type of system. So similar to what your trains look like now, but they would sort of float on air controlled by uh, magnets Mm -hmm. and um, more of a sort of subway kind of system that would travel in speeds of excess of 90 miles an hour. So what we know of as a high-speed train. Yes, very similar. But since then, we've seen other types of uh, technology come online, especially with the private sector engaging, the Hyperloop One. And then we're thinking about the, the driverless cars, the connected vehicles that would essentially travel on a technology type of rail. So we're still trying to figure that out. And when you talk about Hyperloop, what does that mean? So the Hyperloop One is a type of technology. It started as what was called an evacuated tube transport. Think about the uh, old bank teller systems where you stick the little device into the tube and thump, and off it goes. Uh, since then, it's graduated to a uh, maglev type of system. It's enclosed in a tubular type of system. They're testing it. They've got a, a potential test track here in Colorado identified for the near future. I imagine one of the issues, what I always hear, is cost. Yeah, I don't want to get focused on cost, though, because the improvements of the technology, the technology is becoming cheaper. And also now that we're seeing the private industry starting to take notice of uh, these technologies and our transportation challenges, I think we're going to see those costs really come down. That 2014 study identified a cost, but like I said before, the technologies are changing. We didn't exactly really kick the tires on understanding the real financial costs of the system, but now now that the private industry is, is taking a hard look, uh, it's very exciting to see what the future might hold. Of course, if you look at cars, there's a high cost to them too. For example, traffic jams. Oh, there's a tremendous cost. Actually, in 2007, there was a study that was commissioned that uh, looked at the I-70 Mountain Corridor. And due to uh, congestion, uh, due to accidents, weather-related events, we know that, or we, we, we understand that Colorado is losing about a billion dollars a year uh, to its economy uh, due to traffic. And that also includes the latent demand for the I-70 corridor, who is not going up uh, into the mountains right now uh, because of the, the traffic and the delays that exist. And I keep hearing about millennials not having as many cars. Right. So there may be more of a demand for this. Right. Absolutely. I think that what we're seeing with the millennials uh, driving far less than Americans did in the past, I understand that they're even getting their driver's license in a later time in their life than when perhaps I was, I couldn't wait until I was 16. Right. Uh, So I think that's going to have some real big impacts into the future. So if you had an actual high-speed system, is there a clear physical path for one right now to the mountains? So through the 2014 study, we identified some potential routes. Uh, also, it, it depends on the technology, depending on the speeds that it travels, uh, how straight you need to make the track to avoid the curves. But we do keep track of where that train might be able to or where that AGS system, I should say, could be placed within the corridor. Uh, it can go 
into the tunnels. It can go above ground uh, in the median. There are multiple options for some of these high-speed technologies. Would you have to move private property? Not necessarily. Uh, And actually, I would say with this type of technology, uh, you've got a better opportunity to uh, avoid private property. So let's say we put in a high-speed system. Any sense of the cost of that? So the economic impact uh, is something that we're studying right now for the I-70 mountain corridor for a rapid speed mobility type of system, an AGS type of system. Any guess based on other high-speed rails? No, I don't want to make any guesses. Every community, every situation is very different. I know there's an economic study that's being done or has been done for Baltimore to New York, uh, maglev system. But I would hesitate before I I begin to uh, extract any uh, information from other studies. Why look at trains or mass transit now? It seems like it comes up every so often. Um, We know that to meet 2050 travel demands, we need both highway improvements and high-speed mass transit. It's not something that uh, we can build our way out of with just adding lanes. What are the next steps? How soon could this happen? So uh, certainly we hope that it happens by 2050, keeping up with our plan for the I-70 Mountain Corridor. But I think that the new technologies that are coming online, especially with driverless vehicles, uh, connected vehicles, we're going to begin seeing those in the next five years. That will be a game changer. It will be a real disruption in some respects into our system and present entirely new opportunities. So I think in some respects, we're going to see this sooner than we expect. Thanks so much. You bet. Thank you. Tim Mock is co-chair of the I-70 Collaborative Effort, and he's transportation liaison for Clear Creek County. He spoke to us to answer a question from Colorado Wonders. What do you wonder about this state? Go to CPR.org and click on Colorado Wonders to let us know. Colorado jazz musician Ron Miles remembers watching the funeral for Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. when he was five years old. Even as a small child, he knew it was a pivotal moment in history. Miles will honor Dr. King next month in a concert at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. He was also inducted into the Colorado Music Hall of Fame last year and is up for a Grammy this year. Ron, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Andrea. Thanks for having me. Last Friday, you performed at Metro State University's annual MLK Peace Breakfast. This year's breakfast focused on Dr. King's involvement with the 1964 Berlin Jazz Festival. Dr. King actually wrote the opening address for the festival. Tell us about his connection to jazz. Well, Dr. King spoke of the music a lot, and so many of the musicians who were uh, around in the 1960s cited him as a a major influence on what they were doing. And at that jazz festival in 1964, uh, the inaugural uh, festival, I think Miles Davis uh, played one of the first gigs they played with Wayne Shorter in that famous uh, quintet. And um, so uh, his, his, his speech talked about the fact that there was this connection between jazz and the movement, and uh, it was really, really quite remarkable. Your latest album is called I Am a Man. I understand that title references something Dr. King was part of. Yeah, it references the uh, Memphis sanitation strike of 1968, which I guess 50 years ago last year was also the 50 years of his passing. And he was 
killed while he was there supporting the the striking workers and um uh yeah that people carrying around those those uh, of course those famous placards saying that I am a man uh standing up for our uh dignity and and everything song now how does it make you feel well we um we've never performed as a band actually this these performances at duke and kennedy center will be the first times we've played it and i haven't listened to that in quite a long time so it makes me uh, smile to think of how great everybody sounds i'm an honor to play with them all Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech, I've Been to the Mountaintop, was given one day before he was killed. In it, he mentions the possibility of an untimely death. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now. Because I've been to the mountaintop. I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life, longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. How often do you think about that speech? Mm, Quite a bit. And, um, you know, especially now, you know, in, in churches everywhere, sermons uh, uh hopefully we're dealing with dr king and and there's so much in that speech it's a really long speech yeah. you know he talks about uh, the parable of the good samaritan shows up he talks about the fact that instead of waiting for lands of milk and honey in the future we've got to deal with the poor and the and and the discriminated against in our midst right now he talks about the fact that that the powers that be will try and distract you and get you fighting amongst yourselves and and keep you off focus. He talks about monetary empowerment. So much is is in there. It's 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 quite a radical speech. He was a radical fellow. Do you see parallels between then and now? Oh, so much. I mean, I think that the level of distraction that uh, that particularly I think coming from this this current administration mirrors so much of what was going on in in the politics of that time. I mean, we think of, of, of the mayor of Atlanta even having the military out around the um, uh, around his residence, um, saying to shoot them down and 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 line them up if they try and get in uh, uh, to him. Uh, he was worried about uh, 
the people uh, celebrating Dr. King's legacy, you know, worrying about him and attacking him. So uh, we, we, we can't lose focus. And even now with this, with uh, these workers being laid off, mm-hmm. the furloughed, not being paid. Federal asked, workers. Federal workers. And, and we see this kind of, like I say, the level of distraction coming from this current administration. Uh, we, we can't lose focus that, that, that they deserve our respect and our concern. So we need to focus on them right now as much as anything. Do you see progress too? Oh, immense progress. I mean, I think he talked about the fact that if he could go to any time in history in that speech, he would he would be where he was now. And I think that we also are blessed to be here now. That that um, that I think that gerrymandering and and redistricting may have confused the message that there are more people who um, care about their brothers and sisters than are sometimes represented in in the public discourse of the day. But there's a lot of us out here. I think there's more of us than those that don't care. You were very young when Dr. King was killed. Do you remember seeing him on TV or hearing him in the news? Oh, well, certainly hear about him in the news for my entire life, really. And, and I was, maybe I was, I wasn't quite five yet because he, he, he was killed in, in April. and My birthday's in May, I think. Um, but, but I certainly remember, you know, just seeing the black and white TV on in the house and, and seeing how sad uh, Mrs. King looked. I, I mean, I, I just remember that and not really grasping what, what all that meant, but just there was this immense sadness and sadness in the community that, that really resonated all around. How did your parents react to his death? Well, I mean, I just remember everyone just just weeping and um, and 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 wondering what was going to happen, you know, as 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 we moved as we moved forward. I mean, you think about that too. That you know, I was four, my sister was three, my mom was pregnant. You know, there's a lot going on in our family at that time. And then what what's going to be happening in in this world at this time? And um, but but my my folks were were very steadfast uh, through all of our childhood and and getting us to um, you know the thing the thing I think about my parents because my dad passed away in October is is that they were people who really cared about other folks and I never heard them uh, talk about uh, um, not including people mm-hmm. and and uh, so I think that's something that they sh- they passed on to us and. And I feel very, very rich to have uh, had them as my, as my model, role models as we went forward. When you're performing, do you see your music as a form of activism? Because Dr. King thought jazz embodied the civil rights movement in many ways. Are you thinking about that when you're on the stage? Mm, I'm mostly thinking about communing with my um, brothers and sisters who are on the stage with me and the people in the audience. In the, in the way, I think that's that's part of it too, because he. he you know when he when he talks about in that speech in 1968, the parable of the Good Samaritan, he says that the if I'm correct, he he says that the Good Samaritan is able to see the I and the Thou, that he's able to put himself into this person who's on the side of the road, and I think as as improvisers that that's what we try and do. We try and make a community, a spontaneous community with those that are all around us at that time, and that can only happen with the an amazing amount of mutual respect for the stories that everyone has, because that's what we're doing. We're all sharing our stories in a collective way. And um, 
Next month, you're performing at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. You'll be playing a lot of music that was inspired by Dr. King, but you'll also play some new music that has a more personal connection. Yeah, well, like as I mentioned before, my, my father passed away in October, and so uh, um, as, as his health was failing, I, I wrote a lot of music, and so some of that music will we'll play as well. And I've never played a lot of this music, so I have no idea... Um, again, but I'm trusting that that uh, everybody on the bandstand and in the audience will help lift uh, lift it up and make it as good as it could possibly be. Ron, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Jazz musician Ron Miles of Denver on how the life of Martin Luther King Jr. has influenced him. Miles is a professor at Metro State. He's been nominated for a Grammy Award this year for Best Jazz Instrumental Album. The awards will be given out February 10th. Here's a track of the Grammy-nominated album, Still Dreaming. It's called New Year. On the subject of music, this Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day, we want to share one of our favorite stories about how Dr. King came to hear one of his favorite hymns for the first time right here in Colorado. Here's Ryan Warner to explain. The song is called If I Can Help Somebody. It was performed at King's funeral in 1968. Here's a version recorded recently at the University of Denver from the Spirituals Project Choir. The soloist is Claudette Sweet. If I can help wanted to find out more about If I Can Help Somebody and its Denver connections. And so we've invited Vern L. Howard to our studio. He chairs the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Colorado Holiday Commission and knows this story. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. Let me say that If I Can Help Somebody was written in 1945 by a woman named Alma Andrazzo. It was recorded by various gospel groups and by mainstream singers like Tennessee Ernie Ford. Doris Day did a version. But it seems that King didn't hear it until a visit to Denver in 1956, what was he doing here in 56? Uh, 1956, the New Hope Baptist Church in Denver was having their Women's Day program. And they had asked Dr. King to come and speak. The New Hope Baptist Church was pastored by M.C. Williams, and his wife was Anna Lee Williams. And as part of the program, she had sung the song. She was the singer. Yes, she and was. And so he heard it at this church— and what do you know his reaction to have been? Well, at the time, Dr. King was so moved by the song. He was still the pastor of Dexter Street Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. And on his way back to Montgomery, he stopped in at Atlanta, where his father was the pastor of Ebenezer and his mother was the uh, choir director. And he told her about it. He encouraged her to have the Ebenezer Baptist Church start singing the song. And then as he went back to Dexter Street, he had his choir start performing it as well. And so he spread it to Atlanta and then to uh, and then his environs. Yeah, right. Alabama. King apparently encouraged Mahalia Jackson to record the song, which she did in 1963. Uh, let's hear some of her version. Okay. Yeah. 
I cannot help somebody while I'm singing this song. You know my living journey. You spoke with Coretta Scott King about this song. What did she tell you? That when she had heard the song and saw how Dr. King was moved by it, she realized that this was a song that defined Dr. King, his life. I mean, when you think about the lyrics of the song, when you think about how it says, if I could help somebody as I pass along, if I can help somebody with a word or a song. Now, Tennessee Ernie Ford, right there, he entered a word, a song, or a prayer. If I can cheer somebody with a word, a prayer, a song. That's how Dr. King looked at it. He looked at the Montgomery bus boycott, which was going on at the time. And when he thought about it, he said, you know what? The people we're dealing with, they're not evil. They're not bad people. They just know no better. So if I can help them with a song or a word to show how they're traveling wrong, then my living shall not be in vain. It goes on to say, if I can do my duty as a good man ought, if I can bring back beauty to a world uprought. Let's not forget that Dr. King was a Baptist minister. And the the final part of that is says, if I can spread love's message as the master taught, then my living shall not be in vain. And mind you, everything he did was in a peaceful manner as the master taught and helping someone along the way as the master taught. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you as the master taught. (laughs) So it resonated with Dr. King and it was something that was deep in his heart. It stirred his soul. And it turns out that If I Can Help Somebody was a song he first heard in in Denver. On February 4th, 1968, just two months before he was assassinated, Dr. King gave a sermon called The Drum Major Instinct. And in it, he imagined his own funeral and said he wanted to be remembered for serving others, not for his fame or his accomplishments. And uh, he ended the sermon by quoting from If I Can Help Somebody. So let's, let's listen to that. Yes, if you want to say that I was a drum major, say that I was a drum major for justice. Say that I was a drum major for peace. I was a drum major for righteousness. And all of the other shallow things will not matter. I won't have any money to leave behind. I won't have the fine and luxurious things of life to leave behind. But I just want to leave a committed life behind. And that's all I want to say. If I can help somebody as I pass along, if I can cheer somebody with a word of song, if I can show somebody he's traveling wrong, then my living will not be in vain. What goes through your mind when you hear that sermon? What goes through my mind was Dr. King came to terms with the fact that 
he was going to die. That he was going to die in the service of the civil rights movement. See, Dr. King was receiving, on average, 50 death threats a day. He said to Mrs. King and to his family that this was the sermon that he wanted to be eulogized with. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. Ryan Warner speaking with Vern L. Howard, the chair of the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Colorado Holiday Commission. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Sam Brash, host of the CPR News podcast, Purplish. Our latest episode looks at how now former Governor John Hickenlooper managed to sign gun reform in a purple state. Let's examine our laws and make the changes needed to keep guns out of the hands of dangerous people. As Hickenlooper steps onto the national stage, a look back at one of his toughest moments as Colorado's governor. What that says about him as a potential president. Find Purplish wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters. From CPR News, I'm Andrea Dukakis. The National Geographic documentary Free Solo is getting a lot of buzz these days. It tells the story of climber Alex Honnold, who climbed El Capitan in Yosemite without ropes. I've thought about El Cap like for years, and every year I'm like, that's really scary. I'll never be content unless I at least put in the effort. El Cap is the most impressive wall on Earth. It's 3,200 feet of sheer granite. It's the center of the rock climbing universe. Obviously, I get interview questions about it all the time. Oh, would you like to do that? And you're like, yes, for sure. Ryan Warner spoke with Honold when the climber released his memoir about how and why he pushes himself to extremes. Alex, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. You do what's called free soloing, which means no ropes, no partner, no safety net. It's you and the wall. And I'd like to start with how you got into that brand of climbing in particular. Well, just to be clear, the the free soloing is just a small portion of my total climbing. I mean, uh, I got into climbing in the in the climbing gym when I was a kid, and then spent you know eight or nine years climbing indoors, and then transitioned to the outdoors. But um, because it's so high consequence, I guess it also just requires a lot from you. You know, it requires a higher level of focus. It just requires a higher level of commitment, and so I find it just more rewarding. Do you like that you're alone when you do it? That that it's more isolated? Yeah, I think that's definitely part of the appeal. I mean, just being in, it, it's always in beautiful places. Like you're having a really meaningful experience by yourself in a beautiful place. You're sometimes hanging off a wall, held on only by a few fingers or toes. But does it feel safer to you than it may appear to an observer on the ground? Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's a big part of soloing for me is to take something that like looks crazy or, you know, looks insane and then to make it feel totally comfortable. I mean, a big part of it is to take something that that seems really dangerous and make it feel safe. So, I mean, everything that I've done, I feel really comfortable while I do it, and I I feel safe. You know, it's just looking at it from the outside, you're like, that seems insane. Yeah. But from the inside, it feels totally, totally fine. And that's in part because you have some control over the circumstances. And um, it's funny, it comes out in this book that you've had bigger scares driving uh, than climbing. Yeah. <laughs> well, I also have a lot of control over my preparation and my training and, you know, all the things that go you know, before a big solo. I mean, there's, there's a lot that, a lot that goes into it. I mean, I've been climbing, you know, five days a week for 20 years. It's like a lot of, a lot of training really. Um, whereas other aspects of life, you have a lot less control, like say driving where like random things just happen and it's just sheer chance. 
The book includes essays you've written over the years about various climbs, and at some points you describe yourself as genuinely nervous. Um, You consider abandoning an attempt in Yosemite and almost not getting on the wall at all in southern Mexico. Um, What would you say your limits are? I'm not sure. I mean, I guess my limits are just my hard and fast rules if I look up at something and and I'm filled with fear, then I probably shouldn't do it. And, uh, you know, I mean, that's kind of – there have been many routes over the years where I start up it and I decide that it's just not my day or, or I just, like, can't get into the into the groove and then I just climb back down and, and call it. I mean, I think in general if I look up at something and it seems terrifying, then then obviously it's not not for me. But you you must deal with some fear that you get past. In other words, it's – I suppose it's maybe the difference between fear and terror. <laughs> well, or no, it's more like the difference between – anxiety or nervousness because the thing is even the things that I'm well prepared for and I know that I can do I still feel a little bit of like anxiety I guess or or maybe just nervousness or it's hard to say you know but just some kind of like nervous energy just because I'm doing something for the first time that's never been done and so there's still just like some uncertainty involved there but if I look up at it and feel genuine fear or like deep-seated terror or whatever you want to call it then that's like an unhealthy level and then then I probably should prepare more, I suppose. Maybe it's a, a warning of some kind. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you train in Boulder sometimes with friends. You call it the thick of the climbing scene. Um, but Yosemite is <laughs> your, your favorite place to climb. I'm thinking of you up on the wall of Half Dome, I don't know, with like a tourist peering over the edge or, you know, you passing someone climbing with ropes. What kinds of looks do you get? And, and does it shake your concentration at all? <laughs> uh, it normally doesn't shake my concentration too much, but um, it, I mean, I do have some classic anecdotes from passing parties. Actually, I mean, I think the most classic is uh, I've come up on parties before and had, had the, the belayer, like when I catch up to somebody, they say like, oh, you can't pass, um, which is sort of reasonable if you have ropes on, you know, because like whoever's there first sort of has the right of way. Hmm. But if you don't have a rope... You know, you're kind of like, well, what am I supposed to do? Just like hang here and, and wait for you guys. <laughs> you know, you're like, I think I'm just going to pass. You know, you're like, I'll just do my thing. You guys don't worry about it. Your dad passed away during uh, the one year you spent in college. You later dropped out and you write about anger as a motivator. Quote, there's a rich vein in mountaineering literature of climbers using dark thoughts and stormy moods to precipitate cutting edge climbs, especially solos. Did your dad's death have something to do with choosing this path of free soloing, of pushing the sport to what even some of your friends fear is a is a dangerous extreme? No, I don't think so. Um, I mean, if if I got anything from dad's death, it was more just, you know, a realization that that we only have one life and you have to lead it, you know, as well as as well as you can. Um yeah, I mean, honestly, that quote about uh, dark thoughts has more to do with, like, relationship angst and, uh, you know, that kind of thing, like, you know, getting all upset about a girl or something and then going out and soloing things. Um, <laughs> channeling, yeah. that, channeling that energy. Yeah, exactly. It's all about, like, harnessing your motivation and using it to do the things that you've always wanted to do. Thanks for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Ryan Warner speaking with rock climber Alex Honnold. They spoke when Honnold's memoir, Alone on the Wall, was published in 2015. Honnold is now the subject of a National Geographic documentary, Free Solo, showcasing his amazing climb of El Capitan and Yosemite without ropes.
Thanks for being with us today. I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.